The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Dr. Rebecca Risk. And um, as part of our series for Lyme disease, for Lyme Awareness Month, which is May this this month, we're speaking with Nicola McFadgen Ducharme, author. She's the author of several books, including Beginner's Guide to Lyme Disease, Lyme Disease in Australia, and the Lyme Diet Nutritional Strategies for Healing from Lyme Disease. As well as she has a chapter in the book Insights into Lyme Disease Treatment. Thirteen Lyme literate healthcare practitioners share their healing strategies. Her new book Lyme Brain is due for publication sometime this summer. Anyone with Lyme disease needs no introduction to what the title of this book is implying. Cognitive issues are one of the most overwhelming concerns for those affected by Lyme disease. And today we're going to discuss your options for treating Lyme brain. So Nicola, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Great to be here. Uh, So how did you get involved in writing about Lyme disease? Well, I've been working with Lyme disease for about 13 years now, I would have to say. Um, and I've always loved to write, so it was sort of obvious for me to, to write a book about Lyme disease. My first book, Lyme Brain, actually started out as a patient handout. I sat down to write a two-page patient handout about diet and Lyme, and it just kind of evolved from there, and so I've written a couple more books since then, and um, this will be my fourth. Uh, Well, I'm pretty excited. I think it's going to be a really informative book. Uh, You know, I think um, as somebody who's also suffered from chronic Lyme, it it is a pretty debilitating to lose, you know, your ability to speak properly and to think properly. Um, But can you explain exactly what Lyme brain means so that everybody can understand that? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of an, an informal term used to describe um, mostly the cognitive issues around Lyme disease. So people talk about trouble with focus, trouble with concentration, word finding difficulties, short-term memory loss. Um, so when we say Lyme brain, that's that's usually what we're referring to, but it's a little bit more expansive than that, and I talk about this in the book, where you know Lyme brain can also include psycho-emotional elements. There's a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, um, and other neurological type symptoms. So Lyme brain can refer to quite a lot of different elements, but at its core, we think of it as like the brain fog, the trouble with concentrating, the getting in the car to drive up the road and forgetting where you were going. Um, so for, for people who aren't familiar with Lyme disease, how is this different from what a stroke patient experiences? Because I think a lot of people will relate, you know, neurological cognitive issues with that. So is there a difference between the two? 
Well, there is. I mean, a stroke is typically a more um, specific location in the brain. So it's usually one specific area that's damaged either through a lack of oxygen, an ischemic stroke, or a hemorrhagic stroke where there's a there's a bleed in the brain. And so oftentimes um, it'll affect one half of the brain or one portion of the brain. Um, in Lyme brain, the... The problem is more diffuse throughout the brain, so it's not just that there's sort of one specific area that's responsible for one specific um, function. It's more diffuse, so it can impact many, many different systems, many functions, um, and that's why it's so pervasive because it's not just limited to one area. Um, so what, how does that affect somebody's everyday life? Well, I mean, varying degrees, but it can be absolutely devastating to their day-to-day life. I, I mean, if people, um, the worst kinds of things I hear, I mean, obviously a lot of people can't work, they can't hold down a job because either they physically can't cope with it in terms of fatigue and pain and things like that, but if they can't think and they can't remember things and they can't focus, then there's not many jobs that that's going to work well for. Um, and so, you know, I've spoken to some people who, have very understanding workplaces or they work for themselves so they can structure their work around their own needs um, or they get certain accommodations and allowances at work. But a lot of people just can't work because of the effects of Lyme brain. Um, It also interrupts social interactions um, and relationships. Um, If, you know, again, people tend to have a kind of short fuse for, you know, friends that, can't think right or don't remember dates or don't remember um, outings or um, or are just unable to do any of those things because they, if their anxiety is too high for them to go out and do a lot of social activities. Um, so it gets in the way of relationships too. And then I've seen a really big impact on parents, um, you know, especially mums with Lyme brain trying to take care of their children and not knowing if they're going to remember to pick them up from school or pick them up from soccer or whether they've had the you know, medication or whatever they need that day. And that's really devastating for any parent to think that they can't properly care for their children. Um, well, that's, you know, it sounds pretty devastating, especially if you can't work or, you know, care for your family. Those are, you know, the primary things that we want to do with our lives. And um, it sounds pretty debilitating. And, you know, having experienced myself, I, I know that it is. And uh, I was lucky enough to have the ability to, um, you know, cut my hours back. So I only worked four hours a day and I didn't, you know, have a huge load. But I know not everybody has the options and the choices, even financially, that I did at the time. Yeah, and I think it's, it's a question, too, of, of sort of finding your own patterns. And so finding your energy patterns, finding your sort of your clarity patterns. So for some people, they get up early in the morning and do a couple of hours work while they're still bright, knowing that their you know brain power is going to fade as the day goes on. Other people just have a really hard time getting going in the morning. And so they're better off working in the afternoon or evening hours. So I think everyone's going to just find their own way to find their own stride of where they have a little bit more energy and a little bit more clarity during the day. So I know one of the things that, that can happen, especially when you're having brain fog, I, I can guess that even following through with your treatment must be difficult to do. What happens with people when they're in this state and they have to do such a complicated treatment? Yeah, that's a really good question because Lyme treatment is definitely complicated. And 
especially, you know, it, it, it's usually multifaceted. So there's usually, you know, it could be medications, it could be supplements, there could be other tasks and, and modalities to do at home, like having Epsom salt bars at night or um, doing coffee enemas or whatever the case may be. So it is a juggle. Most people um, end up, you know, making a lot of lists or making some kind of chart of what they have to take. And this is where, again, I think people have to find the accommodations that work best for them. Um, I'm a big fan of making a, an Excel spreadsheet or a, a document of some kind that lays out by time of day what they're meant to take and at what time. And then people use alarms on their phone um, to give them reminders that they have to take something or do something. Um, but the other challenge is, you know, nutrition is such a big part of recovery from Lyme. And it's just that much more of a struggle to, to shop and cook and prepare good food when you have Lyme brain because that takes a whole level of concentration and, and effort as well. Well, so I, you it know, really I... affect treatment because people, things can fall through the cracks, but um, I just encourage people to put things on paper or in a, you know, computer document or on their alarm system on their phone or they've got to have a track somehow, otherwise things just get forgotten. Well, you know, I, I think those that's important advice. And, you know, for anybody, really, I think we all kind of get caught up in our world. And so if your um, brain is, is uh, being affected in some way, it's going to be uh, worse for you and, um, you know, harder to to get through all these new changes that you have to make and things that you have to take. And I know it's harder to learn new things when you're in that position. Absolutely. And I, I see it even with people coming for doctor's appointments. Um, they can be very anxious just getting there and then the pressure to have to kind of think about how they've been doing and report their symptoms accurately and have all their questions ready and they know that they've got a certain amount of time to get all of this done and it can be very sort of, you know, stress and anxiety inducing for them to have to deal with that plus the travel of getting to appointments and things like that. So it just makes everything, you know, just makes everything so much more challenging. Um, so when, you know, you've mentioned a few times the depression, anxiety that can come along with these cognitive issues, um, what what exactly does that look like for people? Again, there's a big range. I would have to say I think overall I see more anxiety than depression. But here's here's the problem. It's kind of a double-edged sword because naturally for people to be so unwell and so symptomatic, um, for such a long period of time, challenge, you know, challenging treatment, long treatment, um, not straightforward. They've often been kind of misdiagnosed, misled, misguided, mistreated by, you know, previous medical practitioners. Um, that's, you know, that's all pretty depressing. So, you know, I think depression and anxiety, and this is what I tell my patients, it's a double-edged sword. Depression and anxiety are natural responses to their experience. Um, most people would experience depression and anxiety going through what they've been through. On the other hand, depression and anxiety are actually just legitimate symptoms. I mean, they are symptoms just as real as fatigue or joint pain. So I try and encourage people to really think that even if they're experiencing depression and anxiety, um, firstly, it's understandable because they're going through such a tremendous um, challenge in their life. And secondly, they can just be organic symptoms of the disease, just like any, any other symptom. And therefore, with treatment, 
those symptoms will also resolve. Um, and so it's not that they're stuck with depression and anxiety for life. It's not that they are then labeled a depressed person or an anxious person. The illness is causing depression and anxiety on one hand. And then on the other hand, depression and anxiety are very natural responses to what's going on. So it's, it's sort of hardly any surprise that we see that so much. But I just really encourage people to think, you know, the, the infection is doing this to you. The disease is doing this to you. This is not you. You are not depressed or, and anxious at your core and you won't be that way for the rest of your life. Now, you know, granted, some people have pre-existing depression that's been with them for years and there are exceptions to that where depression and anxiety might be lifelong struggles, um, well, I, you know, irrelevant to the Lyme. Yeah, I think it, it's important what you said that, it, you know, it's it's caused by the situation and, and the disease because I know a lot of people and myself included went through, you know, you know, at least 10 doctors or so that tell you that that's your problem and that you just have depression, anxiety, and you need to, you know, deal with that and you go and deal with that and you still have all your other symptoms and nothing resolves. And, um, you know, it's once you're told that more than once, it's kind of the how you're feeling about who you are. You feel like, well, I'm crazy because I'm working on this and I can't resolve it and I still feel this way no matter what I do because there's something else at the root cause of it that hasn't been addressed yet. Yeah, and I see a lot of people who are like, you know, my doctor just said I'm depressed, and they're sort of, they said, no, I was having a great life. I was very happy. I was successful. I was, you know, satisfied with my life. And it, it just doesn't make sense to just say, oh, you're just depressed, and that's, that's all, you know, that's all that's going on. You need to resolve that, because it just doesn't fit with a lot of people's experience of the world. Well, you know, it, it it's probably coming along with how they are, but I think that starts when they're sick for so long and they can't get help. Uh, and, you know, and I felt that way as well. Um, why would you feel good when you don't feel good? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. What's interesting about it, though, is that I, uh, and I talk about this in the book, as much as, you know, depression and anxiety is sort of symptoms and they're part of, they're often part of the line picture, Um I also try to encourage people to be very deliberate about their thought life um, because I've done some study on an area called neuroplasticity where um, you can actually strengthen neural pathways in your brain by choosing certain thoughts. And so it can be very, very challenging because, you know, their chemistry is stacked against them. But I still encourage them to choose positive thoughts and hopeful thoughts all the time even if they don't feel like it, even if they're depressed, even if they're anxious. Um, And it's very deliberate. They have to train themselves to do it. But you can strengthen those neural pathways and and help your brain to sort of become more positive. Um, Well, I think that's important as well, especially when people are coming in feeling this way with their their, you know, memory issues and they can't think clearly. And I know a lot of people are quite afraid um, because of that. And so to know that, you know, this can be turned around um, can give some people a little bit of of hope as they move through because it is going to take a while before it clears. I know it did for me, but I knew that there was going to be a light at the end of that journey where I would um, you know, be able to think clearly again. And obviously there is, or we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So um, we are going to take a quick break. We're talking today to Nicola McFadgen Ducharme. She is the author of several books, and today we're discussing her book coming out this summer called Lime Brain, uh, which for most people needs no introduction. It's about the cognitive issues associated with Lyme disease. If you have any questions about this show, we are recording live. You can call in or send us an email at anantacalgary at gmail.com or message us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear your thoughts. We'll be back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Ouch! What do you think of when you think of dental procedures? Well, when you think about it, the teeth and the rest of the body are strongly connected. What happens in one part affects the other. In the Tooth Body Connection with host Dr. Don Ewing, we'll explain more about these concepts as well as discuss the role that your teeth play in your overall health. You'll learn about amalgams and how removing them the wrong way can be toxic to your body. Tune in Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk, and today we're speaking with Nicola McFadgen Ducharme. She is the author of several books, including The Lyme Diet, Nutritional Strategies for Healing Lyme Disease, and today we're discussing her new book due to come out this summer, which is called Lyme Brain. It is uh, needs no introduction for most people suffering with Lyme disease. We're discussing the cognitive issues that can come with this disease. So, Nicola... Um, what what exactly is happening with Lyme brain? Why is, does it affect people this way? Well, there's a few different mechanisms that, that I think about. I mean, most people think the most direct one is I have infection in my brain, in my central nervous system. 
And that is a possibility. That happens a lot in Lyme disease, um, especially chronic Lyme disease, where infection can actually get into the brain. And so one of the possible mechanisms is just sort of straight damage to nerve cells and the presence of infection in the brain itself. Um, but one of the big things I see as contributing is the inflammatory response. So inflammation can cause symptoms of Lyme brain um, and the inflammation can be derived from infection in the brain, but it doesn't always have to be. So one can have infection in the body, um, in the periphery, and that's generating inflammation that will impact the brain because those cytokines can travel through the body and cross the blood-brain barrier. So I think that inflammation is a huge contributor to Lyme brain. And the good news about that is that, you know, inflammation can be kind of well-managed over time. People, when we talk about damage to nerve cells, are always sort of, you know, the, the biggest fear is, is that permanent or is it temporary? Can I recover from that? And um, there are a few things that they can do to help with, like, remyelination of nerves and things like that, helping to regenerate the nervous um, system tissue. But the inflammatory response can typically be well managed through treatment and also through diet and things like that because eating the wrong foods can kick up inflammation that then goes to the brain. And gluten would be a classic example of that. So that's two different mechanisms. Then the third would be different kinds of neurotoxins that are associated with the bacteria themselves. Um, there was a, a toxin specific to Borrelia found, BB-tox-1, that um, there was a bit of research done about that and then it kind of fell a bit by the wayside. But even things like aldehydes and ammonia are, are neurotoxins that can impact people with Lyme brain. Um, and of course, then mycotoxins, if people have had mold exposure, that's, you know, that's another one to think about. And then the fourth one I talk about in the book is more, um, this is probably more an effect of the infection itself, but um, but can be a cause of Lyme brain is neurotransmitter imbalance. So neurotransmitters are like our brain chemicals and when something's not right in the system, our neurotransmitters are thrown off. And so if we have low serotonin, for example, that could fuel uh, depression if you have low GABA, that can predispose one to anxiety. If you have not enough tyrosine um, filtering through to um, norepinephrine or epinephrine, then the brain might not be alert enough. So these neurotransmitters are, are quite important in the way the brain functions. Um, and they can be, I guess, manipulated, for want of a better word, either by medication or my preference would be through amino acids. Um, an amino acid therapy where you can support neurotransmitters and modulate neurotransmitters. Well, I like the idea of the amino acids better because it's going to get the person's body to be able to do it on their own. And for some people, and, and you know, I'm in this category, um, medications and pharmaceuticals can't be metabolized properly by my liver. So, um, you know, the more natural approach was always better for me and my treatment. And, Absolutely. Uh, and amino yeah. acid therapy is great because it can give you the benefits without all the side effects of medication. Now, I do have some patients that need to be on antidepressants for a period of time. I try and encourage them to think of it as sort of a short-term bridge. Um, and look, if that's what they need, then there's nothing, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. 
um, if that's what they need to get them through. Well, but, and I, um, you know, I, the natural I, way is the best. Yeah, I think that's important to point out that, you know, sometimes people don't want to be on medication and they feel um, kind of guilty about it, that they ha- they're they having to do that. And, and um, you know, mo- most of this treatment should be temporary for you as, as you get better and get through it and you just do what you need to do to get out of the situation you're in until right, you absolutely. do get better. Yeah. Yeah, and the exception to that, I mean, some of the medications like, you know, people take Xanax and whatnot and again... I know some people that just can't function without it. I know some people that just simply can't sleep without it. Um, but I do worry about medications like that because of their addictive potential and, and just the problems with withdrawal. Yeah. Um, so when when we're talking about Lyme disease, of course, there are other infections that can come along with it. We have the co-infections. And are those contributing to the Lyme brain symptoms? Yes, they absolutely are. So, I mean, the co-infections will just produce more inflammation in the body and just contribute to that overall load. But sort of, you know, specific co-infections do tend to present um, with certain symptoms. So generalization, but Babesia I see creates sort of more of a generalized anxiety kind of picture, whereas in Bartonella I see more severe psych symptoms. So there might be... Um, panic attacks, really severe anxiety, um, OCD, obsessive compulsive kind of behaviors. Um, and, you know, Bartonella can go on to causing seizures and things like that. So when I see the more severe, almost psychiatric kind of symptoms, I think more about Bartonella. When I see more generalized anxiety, I think about Babesia. And then when I see more of the brain fog kind of elements, I think more about Borrelia or Lyme itself. Okay. Well, I think that, you know, that's important um, that people understand that Lyme, you know, is is so complicated and there's so many different things that are going on, which is why... Yeah, there's so much overlap with symptoms and that's not even getting into, you know, are heavy metals playing a role um, or is hormone imbalance playing a role or are mold toxins playing a role? Um, there's so many different things that could potentially go into it. So it's sort of hard to to really sort of, the risk is oversimplifying it. Yeah, which might be important if anybody is listening with Lyme Brain, <laughs> so we can um, keep it simple. So, um, you know, you've mentioned these the, the mold and the metals. Now, is there anything else that, that um, can contribute to the toxins? Um, what you're looking at with somebody with this disease. Yeah, I mean, mold and metals are two big ones in terms of toxicity, but any chemicals, I mean, any toxic exposures, I know some people that are really strongly affected by EMF and that that can become a toxin for them. Um, So there's many different things that that can act as toxins in the body. Um, and even just through foods, just if, if one's not eating organic, just pesticides and fertilizers and antibiotics and hormones and things that come through food can make an impact. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are toxins, but then there are also things like, you know, hormone imbalance. Um, if somebody has low thyroid function, for example, their brain's more likely to be kind of sluggish and, and they'll be more fatigued and less sharp if they have low thyroid function or low adrenal function. So there are all kinds of things that we want to talk about as well. 
So um, when someone comes to see you, obviously this is very complicated. And so how do you narrow down with them what is going on and what's affecting them as opposed to the next person? <laughs> That's the million-dollar question. Um, to some extent, it's doing sort of functional testing just to see what else is going on. I always like to have adrenals and thyroid and um, do the urine test for heavy metals. Mole testing is a little bit more complicated. I mean, at the very least, I'll get like C4A and other sort of markers, neurotoxin markers, um, or do a urine test for mycotoxins itself if we think that that's you know, a problem. People need to have their home tested if, if mold is a possibility. Um, so, you know, just doing a certain amount of testing and then just moving into the treatment phase, um, you know, sort of going after what's obvious and then seeing what's left over. Okay. And that, that's, you know, I, I think that's important because you never really know which of those is contributing to what they're experiencing until they go through treatment. Right. And oftentimes you don't know. You just have to start. You just have to make yeah. a start. Yeah. So um, um, what is your approach when you start approaching the, the treatment? So you get all this information together, and then what do you do first with a patient? Typically the first thing I will do is sort of help them supporting detoxification. Um, because that will help to reduce that sort of inflammatory response. But before we do any antimicrobial therapy, we have to make sure that they're detoxing adequately. So whether that's looking at methylation and methylation support, just liver detox, um, elements like glutathione and Smilax and things like that to get their detox working better. Um, and obviously starting with their nutrition. And I'm happy to say that a lot of people come to see me already gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free. Um, and doing, you know, as much as they can in that respect. Um, sometimes we'll do food sensitivity testing to see if we can hone that in any in any more detail. Um, and then we'll get started with antimicrobial therapy. And I I do a lot of what I call a herbal provocation for co-infections. It's not a perfect science, but I found that if I start people with a herb that we tend to use more for Borrelia, and then you know, 10 days later add a herb that we use for Babesia and then 10 days later a herb that we use for Bartonella and try and get some kind of clinical feedback from that as to which co-infections are playing, playing what role. And then from there we go into the antimicrobial protocol, whether that be antibiotics or natural treatments um, because at the end of the day, the best thing to get rid of Lyme brain is to get rid of the Lyme disease. Yeah, that's true. So when you start going through this treatment with them, um, what do they experience? Well, to be honest, a lot of them will experience a worsening of symptoms in the beginning. Um, I try and keep that relatively mild. I'm not one on thinking that people have to have huge Herx reactions in order to get a benefit. And if we've done our work adequately with supporting detoxification, then that should minimize some of that Herx reaction. Um, but, you know, a, a, a lot of it, too, is the decisions made depend on what happened after the last month's decision. So I sort of see it as a game of chess. You know, you sort of know where you want to be four or five moves down the road, but you have to take it one step at a time and just monitor how people have responded, you know, what's getting better, what's not getting better, what else might be in the way, and go from there. 
I just want to discuss a little bit the worsening of uh, symptoms. I know this is very common with Lyme. Um, I experienced this quite a bit, and I know that this can sometimes scare people a little bit. So can we just talk about, you know, why this is happening and and what it is? The Herxheimer reaction? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's called a Herxheimer reaction, and the bottom line is that it generally causes symptoms to become worse or flare up in the beginning of treatment. And it's really as we kill off the bacteria, they release toxins of their own. Um, and so it can be a sign that the treatment is working. It's just not always pleasant. And it has to be monitored because there are some people, especially who have you know bad psychiatric symptoms or have really bad cardiac symptoms um, or really severe shortness of breath, to where that can can actually get quite dangerous. So we want to monitor it and not let it get too bad. So, you know, when you start seeing that flare-up of symptoms, it can be a good sign, as I said. Part of the tricky is figuring out, is it a Herx reaction or is it a sort of side effect of a medication or a treatment that you've started? And a couple of rules of thumb I have for that. One is usually side effects are fairly immediate. Um, whereas Herx reactions can take a few days to come on. Um, and side effects can be new symptoms, usually, you know, headache, um, GI, gastrointestinal upset, that kind of thing. Whereas a Herx reaction is a worsening of one's familiar symptoms. So a okay. Herx is more like just everything they're used to feeling gets worse. Um, okay. Well, I, you know, I definitely went went through this um, quite dramatically, and I know you you mentioned the neurotoxins that that can cause issues, and ammonia was a, a big one for me, and I know for a lot of people with Lyme, um, and uh, you know, it, it it I had to go very slow because my body couldn't tolerate what I was doing, but eventually, you know, it it got better and it got easier as I went through it. I just had to, like you said, I had to monitor it and make sure everything was going okay. Right, right. Um, so, um, w- when people are going through this, and uh, you know, we've talked about depression and anxiety, um, are those part of the worsening of the the Herxheimer that happens as well? Is that something you have to monitor? They can be, yeah, they can be as well. Because, like I said earlier, they are actually symptoms of the illness. The the infection is creating that. So, anything you do to sort of you know, stir up the infection could potentially make those things worse as well. Okay. And and how does sleep affect all of this that's going on? Sleep is huge. Um, I mean, if you don't sleep, you're not going to have clarity of, of thought and brain, whether you have Lyme or not. So sleep really can impact um, the level of brain fog. The difficulty with sleep is that a lot of Lyme patients can't sleep. And they'd they'd love to. They'd be happy to take eight-hour sleep if they could get it. But insomnia is a really big symptom too. And so it becomes a vicious kind of cycle. They can't think straight because they're not sleeping. They can't sleep at night because they're all, their brain's wired and they're sort of wired but tired. And um, so it becomes a bit of a, you know, a catch-22. I do encourage people to get as much sleep as possible before midnight. So again, I realize that in Lyme disease, it can sort of flip-flop the the normal kind of rhythms, daily rhythms, so that people are up at night and then sleeping for a good part of the day. 
But the more sleep one can get before midnight, the body does more of its kind of rest and repair and immune housekeeping then. Um, and then sometimes, you know, we use natural agents like melatonin, 5-HTP, valerian, different herbs to help with sleep. Um, and sometimes people even need medications to help with sleep. Now, I'm not a big fan of sleeping medication, but I have used um, something like trazodone from time to time, which is an old-school antidepressant, but these days it's only really used as a sleep aid um, because getting that quality of sleep is really important. The other thing I found can be helpful for sleep, although ironically it can hinder it in the beginning, is low-dose naltrexone. And low-dose naltrexone I use quite a lot with my patients. It's an immune modulator, but it can also help with pain, mood, energy, and sleep. And um, some people get a bit of a disturbance in sleep for the first couple of weeks, but that usually sort of resolves spontaneously, and it can be very helpful for quality of sleep. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you can't get better if you can't sleep, but you can't sleep because you're sick. It seems to be very common. Exactly. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take, take a quick break. We're talking today with Nicola McFadgen Ducharme. She is the author of several books, including The Lyme Diet, Nutritional Strategies for Healing from Lyme Disease. We're talking today about her new book coming out this summer called Lyme Brain. We're discussing the cognitive issues with Lyme disease and what those mean and how you can help yourself. If you have any questions about today's show, you can call in at 866-472-5792. You can send us an email at Nancy to calgary at gmail.com or you can message us on facebook or twitter we'd love to hear your thoughts and comments we'll be back shortly opinions options answers you're listening to voice america health and wellness Hi, I'm John Rainey, Chief Financial Officer of United Airlines, and I'm honored to be the National Chair for the 2015 March for Babies campaign for the March of Dimes. United is a proud supporter of the March of Dimes mission to improve the health of babies and fight premature birth. We're helping the March of Dimes fund breakthroughs in research and community programs that help more mothers have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Please join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Visit marchofdimes.org. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. 
And today we're talking with Nicola McFadgen Ducharme, and she is the author of several books, um, including The Lyme Diet. And today we're discussing her book, um, Lyme Brain, which is due to come out this summer. Um, this is our um, third of fourth shows this May for Lyme Awareness Month, so be sure to tune in next week um, to hear the last of those. And uh, if you miss the other ones, they are on demand. So, Nicola, um, what um, you've mentioned a few times about, you know, the diet being, you know, actually causing some inflammation, so it's important for them. What steps should somebody take um, if they haven't done this already just to keep that inflammation down in their body? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things that come to mind with that. I mean, the first is reducing inflammatory foods. So I would put gluten, dairy, and sugar in the category of inflammatory foods. Um, those foods, especially gluten, I mean, I, I really believe that no Lyme patient should, should be eating gluten at all just to, to help their whole body inflammation. Um, but those in, inflammatory chemicals can actually travel through the bloodstream and cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, so if you're eating gluten and getting an inflammatory response in the gut that can actually transfer and translate up to, to brain fog and Lyme brain. So those chemicals can cross the blood-brain barrier and set off fireworks in the brain, even though it doesn't seem, you know, it seems to be more of a gut issue. It's, it's actually very much a brain issue too. So, I mean, reducing inflammatory foods, I try and have people do food sensitivity testing so that we can see if there's anything else that might be triggering them. Um, eggs are coming up frequently, uh, soy, some of the more common allergens, but then also for some people it's not common. It's things like garlic or cranberries or things that you just wouldn't expect. But those foods could still be having an inflammatory response because they're still triggering an immune reaction. So step one is reducing inflammation in the gut. Step two is um, making sure that the gut is not um, getting what we call like leaky leaky gut. And leaky gut is when the cell junctions um, with the cells in the small intestine open up, the spaces between the cells get bigger. And because of that, larger than normal food molecules can get through into the bloodstream and they can cause an immune reaction. So it's not only about the types of foods that you're eating, it's about trying to, to really look at gut health and healing the, the gut wall so that the larger molecules aren't getting through and triggering an immune response. Um, and we have a couple, I mean, there's a few different ways to do that. Like L-glutamine is an amino acid that's good for healing the gut wall. There's a product we've been using called Restore for Gut Health that's actually really working beautifully, helping people not only with their gut but also with their brain um, because those two things are so closely connected. And then also, you know, good probiotics and things like that to keep the microbiome healthy, to try and keep the gut flora healthy is imperative. Um, so I, I know, you know, I, I counsel people in the same way as you, um, especially with gluten, dairy and sugar and then anything else they need. But of course, I, I think this causes them more anxiety than their actual treatment. Um, do you have any advice for how people can get started to um, change their diet and, and, you know, make that a little easier for them? Yeah, I mean, I always encourage people just to sort of take it one step at a time. Um, don't don't expect themselves to be gluten, dairy, and sugar-free by tomorrow. Um, 
and I encourage people to sort of choose one thing each week to try and tackle, one, one new thing to incorporate. So whether that's, you know, incorporating almond milk in their smoothies at home instead of um, cow milk or whether it's um, cleaning out their cupboards of regular pasta and bread and replacing them with gluten-free. Now, I, I tend to think that most people feel better on more of a grain-free diet as well but I think that is an extreme that gets really tricky for some people. And then a lot of people just need some carbohydrate for energy. So I encourage you know, quinoa, sweet potatoes, brown rice, that kind of thing in those situations. I do have a subset of patients who are avoiding grains because they feel so much better when they don't eat grains. But I think the trick is just one step at a time. I actually find, and it may be because people come to see me kind of already having taken those steps, I tend to find that those dietary changes can be very empowering for people because I think in an illness where there is so much disempowerment and so much um, sort of challenge with the treatment protocol and how long it takes and all of that kind of stuff, that for people to be able to make nutrition changes in their home gives them the sense that, oh, I'm doing something for my own recovery. I'm doing something to help my body heal. And so I actually just try and really frame it that way for them, that it's probably one of the lowest cost interventions. Um, and it's a way for them to take up, take back a bit of that sort of that power that they can influence their own health in a positive way. Um, you know, I, I think that's important too, especially because this is probably, you know, their first step that they have to take and um, they've been so powerless for so long. I think it's important to give them back a little bit of that and you can control somewhat how you feel through food um, you know we all can whether we have Lyme or not we can um, control how much inflammatory foods we have and how much junk we have and how much of the good stuff we have absolutely and I find that the more people make those changes the more sensitive their bodies become so that when they make poor choices their body gives them pretty instant feedback that, that it didn't like it yeah um, well, yeah, and then you know, you know how that affected you, right? If if you've been off gluten for for a while, and then you have some, and and uh, you can't think clearly, and you're tired, you know what that effect effect that has had on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, when when we're looking at treating Lyme brain, I know we talked a little bit about some medications, but are there some um, you know natural approaches that people can take to see if that can help with the inflammation or with whatever is going on? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely natural detoxification supports and natural anti-inflammatories. Um, and so that can be helpful for people. At the end of the day, we've got to treat the infection. So getting helping with detox and inflammation through things like, you know, glutathione and alpha-lipoic acid and curcumin and white willow. I mean, there's a whole host of different um, natural agents that can be helpful the bottom line is we have to treat the infection too because that's the source of it all. So what I tend to do is use some of the anti-inflammatories and, and detox helpers along the way as we get to the underlying cause of treating the infection and whether that's getting treated with herbal regimens or I use some essential oils in my treatment or antibiotic therapy, um, that's sort of got to be at the core of the program and then we can use other helpers to kind of manage some of the symptoms and manage some of the inflammation. 
Well, I think this is important. I know sometimes people, when they, you know, come to me, they they wonder why we're not, you know, treating the infections first off when we have to get, you know, they're so full of inflammation and they have to change their diet and do all that. And I think it's important to point out how important that is so that, um, you know, their body response isn't just inflammatory and they actually start to get better. Yeah, it's important to do that kind of the, the homework, the footwork first. Um, and that means that, you know, some people think, oh, it's, a, it's just taking up time that they'd rather spend doing antimicrobial work. But it actually saves time in the end, I think, because then it sets that person up to have a better response when we do the antimicrobials. And Which everyone's I- different too. Everyone's got different levels of sensitivity. So some people can start sort of detox helpers, if, especially if they're already on a good diet, and go into antimicrobials, you know, a couple of weeks later, whereas other people need much more time um, before they can do anything. I've had a couple of patients where I've actually referred them to clinics that specialize in methylation, and they'll go off for six or eight months and work on methylation before they come back to me to treat Lyme. Yeah. Well, you know, um, it all comes down to how our genetics are dealing with those things. And, uh, you know, well, I know it did for me anyway with having, you know, severe issues with, with my liver as well as with ammonia. Um, adding Lyme to that mix was just sort of a, a bomb, really. Right. Yeah. yeah um, there's a total load, in, you know, in your body yeah. too. So if people are sort of dealing mostly with infections, it's rarely just Borrelia, but let's just say sort of, you know, the, the chronic infectious piece. Um, then that's a very different part, you know, different presentation to someone who's got heavy metals and mold and Lyme and pyrrole disorder and methylation issues. And, you know, so, so it's a total load issue in the body how many different pieces of the puzzle um, there are going into the whole picture. So do you find that um, when your patients come in, instead of actually just treating, you know, oh, you have Lyme, this is the protocol, you're actually treating that person with Lyme? Is that more what's happening? Yeah, I mean, that's the way it should be. And so one of the challenges, you know, one of the challenges in treatment is if I see a patient, you know, every month or every two months, um, it's hard. I find it hard as a practitioner to manage everything. I, I do find that it can be useful if people have a little bit of a team approach um, just because it is hard to to manage absolutely every aspect um, when I'm only seeing them at least once a month or every couple of months. Um, so, you know, some people do have other naturopaths or other practitioners um, who bring different areas of expertise, which I think is good. Um, it gets a little confusing if there's too many cooks in the kitchen and if their other practitioners are making comments about um, or have opinions about the treatment I've put them on, for example. So... I have a few practitioners where we just have a really, really nice sort of cooperative relationship and we're really, you know, treating patients together. And, and, and I think that can be great for people to have more than one set of eyes and, you know, one, one set of experiences on their case. Um, so, well, you know, but it can be a lot some- to manage. Yeah, and with something so complicated, um, like, you know, as he, he said, it's multifaceted. So, um, you know, we do need um, more than one person working on something, whether it's just help with the pain or help with the psychological or even somebody else to help with, as you said, methylation or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm, yeah. I mean, I know, I know a certain amount about methylation and I know a certain about, about, uh, amount about mold. Um, but if we know that either of those things are really fundamental to somebody's 
case, then I will tend to refer out for those areas. Okay. Um, So uh, just quickly, um, you know, if somebody is listening to this and, uh, you know, this is really affecting them, where do you recommend that they start if they haven't started their treatment and don't have any help yet? Um, Well, I I definitely think before doing anything else, they can start with their own diet choices. I think that's a really good place to start. Um, And it is something that they can pretty much do for themselves. They may want to seek out the help of a nutritionist or a naturopath or, you know, another health practitioner to help navigate them and guide them. Um, But, you know, they can also get resources like the Lyme Diet Book and just kind of follow the guides um, or, you know, the anti-inflammatory diet sort of structures. So, I mean, I think doing the nutrition piece is the first thing people can do, and that's going to help whatever else they do down the road. And then the other thing they can do is just some of the modalities for home, like starting to do Epsom salt baths or if they have access to infrared saunas or for a lot of people doing coffee enemas makes a huge difference to their Lyme brain. Um, I talk to quite a lot of my patients about that. So, you know, these can be things that people want to start gradually, you know, putting somebody in an infrared sauna for 30 minutes at 140 degrees probably wouldn't be a great idea right off the bat, but if they can access those kinds of therapies, um, they can start incorporating those. And okay. then, um, and really the next step would be looking at sort of, you know, detoxification, reducing inflammation, and then going more into antimicrobial therapy from there. Um, so I've, I've loved the show. I, I, I love all this information that you've given us. I think it's important with anybody who is suffering from Lyme to, to understand, um, or, or, you know, anybody who's not, who's their supporter in their lives to understand how complicated this disease actually is. So if anybody has any questions, is there any way that they can get a hold of you? Yeah, so they can reach me through our practice website is restoremedicine.com. That's R-E-S-T-O-R medicine with no E on the end of restore, um, dot com. So they can email to info at restoremedicine.com. They can find us that way. And then in terms of the book, they could go to limebrainbook.com. And once it's available, it will be for sale there, but they can pre-register with their email address. And that way we will, um, we will notify them when the book is very first available. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that book, Lime Brain, will be out uh, sometime this summer. So stay tuned. And, um, you know, it's a great book and the information in it is um, important, but also easy to read. So if you do suffer from Lime Brain, um, it'll go a little easier for you to read it than some other things. I want to thank, um, I want to thank you for joining us today, Nicola. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So today we were speaking with Nicola McFadgeen Ducharme. She's the author of several books, and we're discussing today her book, Lime Brain, which is due to come out this summer. Um, Tune in next week where we're speaking with um, Heiner Fruhoff, who is a Chinese medicine doctor who treats Lyme disease. Um, That is the last of our shows on Lyme uh, for May this month. And um, if you have any questions about this show, be be sure to send an email at anantacalgary at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. 
please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week.